blessed sound to have the sound of children in a church. Well, if you will please turn in a copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 16. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1029. Matthew 5, starting at verse 10, down through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, we need you every hour we need you. And in this half hour, we especially need you, Lord, as we look at your word. Help us by your Spirit. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see that you would change us and transform us by the work of your Spirit, by your grace. We pray for anointing in the name of Jesus. Amen. God calls us to be salt and light in this world, even when the world doesn't like it, as we look to the reward that is ours in Christ Jesus. God calls us to be salt and light in this world even when the world doesn't like it as we look to the reward that is ours in Christ Jesus. It is amazing what an an ordinary Christian can do and what an ordinary Christian can have in terms of impact on his or her family and community. Just like when eggs are salted, the entire omelet is changed. And just like when a single candle is lit in a very dark cave, there are shadows that are made and the walls are revealed. So the Lord calls us to be salt and light in this world. How do you change the course of a river or a stream? It happens. Our maps are full of them. It takes a long time, but what happens? The flow of water constantly flowing against the bank There is pushback. The riverbank doesn't like it. It doesn't want to be changed. And it takes time, but eventually a crooked stream is made straight. And the surrounding ecosystem is forever changed. And so the Lord calls us to be salt and light in this world, to be used by God to point others to Him, that our lives and our communities might be transformed. What happens when you put a small space heater in a freezing cold room? It's almost like the cold is fighting back and saying, you will never warm me up. But slowly but surely, first the edge of the cold is taken off. 
and soon you find yourself taking off your jacket. It takes a while, but soon you can no longer see your breath. So the Lord calls us to be used by Him, to be salt and light. That as we live out our professions, as our relationship with the Lord impacts every area of our life, that we might be used by God for His glory and for the good of others. Thousands of biographies have been written about famous people, famous Christians whom God used in mighty ways to bring about big impacts, big changes. But for every one of those biographies, how many millions, and that's the right word, how many more millions are there of ordinary believers whom the Lord has used to change their families and their churches and their communities as they, as we, serve as salt and light with those around us, used by God to transform this world. God calls us to work as acts, agents of transformation, pointing people to Christ. And so the main point this morning is, we are called by God to be salt and light in this world, even when the world doesn't like it, as we look to our reward in Christ. This morning, as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount, we finish the Beatitudes. There's really one Beatitude. Verse 10 is the Beatitude, and uh, verse 11 and 12 really are an extension or an explanation of that last Beatitude. And then we also go into the salt and light passage because these really serve to conclude the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes and the salt and light passage talk about the um, effect of a life that has been transformed by the Lord. And then with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, God or Jesus, who is God, Jesus is going to make specific applications in different areas of life. This is the last kind of general application. We're going to be taking this passage a little bit out of order this morning. I'd like to first start with the end, talking about salt and light. And then we'll go back to a specific way that the world often reacts to God's people living out their testimony, and that is by opposition um, there at the end. First we see in verse 13 where God calls us to be salt of the earth. Well, that's actually not what it says. He doesn't call us to be the salt of the earth. He says we are the salt of the earth. What's so important about salt? Well, quite frankly, without it, we die. We have salt everywhere, right? I have it in a shaker here. Wars have been fought for less salt than this. You know, we have so much salt in our diets that we forget the importance of salt. Without salt, well, you die. We have great foods. We can have a great in income. We can have plenty of family. We can even have two paid-for cars. But without salt, our bodies will cease to function and we will die. Roman soldiers were once paid in salt because it was as good as currency. It has many uses. It can be used actually as fertilizer. You can't have too much, right? But you have to have some salt. It can be used to flavor foods. But most importantly, during Jesus' day, it was used for a preservative. I've talked to some of our older members, and they remember seeing their grandparents as they would slaughter the hog and salt the hog and be able to put it up for the rest of the year. Before the day's refrigeration, you either salted it or you ate it right away. There really was no other option. So knowing that, what was Jesus trying to convey to us? Well, believers in Christ 
whose lives have been transformed by the Lord and in whose lives the Beatitudes are up and running, act like a preserving agent in society. Let me say that again. When we've been transformed by the Lord and Beatitudes are up and running in our lives, believers act as a preserving agent in society. When we let our relationship with the Lord influence every area of our lives, there will be a blessing in our communities. From the smallest of communities, our marriage and our families, to the little bit bigger, to the extended family, the neighborhood, to the church, our city, state, and nation. Just as salt restrains the growth of bacteria and meat, so the presence of believers in community restrains sin. Just as salt restrains the development of bacteria and meat, so the presence of believers in a community restrains sin. What do I mean by that? Well, think about on an extended family level. Some of you are the only believers in your extended family. Christy has a side of her family that they, none of them really know the Lord. And you know what happens when we show up for a family get-together? Especially me being a preacher. It is awkward, right? Have you ever had that happen? Your extended family or a gathering of friends and you walk in and all of a sudden, I mean, things just, you, you realize something just changed. Now, that's not always fun if we're honest. But the reality is that the presence of a believer can have the impact of cleaning up jokes and words certainly, suddenly aren't said. Because there's someone who is living by a different standard. It makes those who don't follow that standard feel uncomfortable. And that's not always a bad thing, by the way. Well, what happens as a microcosm in a family happens on a great scale in culture in our broader communities. Generally speaking, the more believers there are in a culture or community, the more peaceful and godly it will be. It's not because we're awesome people. It's not because of any good within us. It is only because God working through us by the power of the Holy Spirit and the call of the gospel. Most of the time we are unaware of this impact. Think about the food that contains salt. Most of the time you don't see the salt because it's mixed in. But when you put it in your mouth, you know it's there. Does your community, does our community... Know that we are here. There's a hard question that every church, every community must ask. If our church, if the churches of Bruton sudden, and East Bruton suddenly cease to exist, would the community even know it? Would they be aware that the believers are no longer in their midst? This gets to the question that's, that Jesus brings up in verse 13. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I've always wondered about this because salt actually can't lose its flavor. Right? Sodium chloride will always remain sodium chloride, whether it's dissolved or not. Well, in Jesus' day, they didn't have the kind of refining techniques that we have. And so what was sold in the marketplace was a rock of salt. I mean, like, not, not rock salt, but a rock of salt. 
that have been dug out of the ground. Uh, but, but here's the thing, that it was impure. And oftentimes, the actual salt in this rock would dissolve out, leaving gypsum in a form that looks just like salt, but in fact doesn't do you any good when you're cooking with it, and it certainly doesn't taste like it. And so it was possible to buy a rock of salt in the marketplace that weighed like salt, looked like salt, that was not salt, that had lost its saltiness. And what good is it? Well, you just crush it up and throw it out in your yard as a way to help the drive through. So Jesus points this, paints this picture of salt losing its saltiness. So what's the picture here? It's that believers who are no longer distinct in flavor from the unbelieving world around them. Believers who are no longer distinct in flavor from the unbelieving world around them. If we are honest, there are seasons, or perhaps worse seasons in our lives, or maybe now, or certain groups of people in which there's not a lot of difference. Where we put our faith on the back burner and we fall into the lie of secularism. The lie of secularism is that you leave your faith at home or at church and you don't bring it into the workplace or into your friendships or into everyday life. It's just a private thing. Oh, that's a lie. Christ didn't just come to redeem our lives at home but our whole lives. So we must ask ourselves, do our friends, our neighbors, our communities taste us? Do they know that they are believers in their midst? And I'm not saying the way to do that is to go on Facebook and just post all this obnoxious stuff. It's good to post some things on Facebook. But our profession has to be so much more than just sayings, right? We're not just talking about words or or when it's easy to say them, but, but when people are hurting, people need help, and our words, and even more so our actions and our attitudes and motivations, it's got to be a, a heart thing. But Jesus continues on with another metaphor describing the impact that we are meant to have on our communities, and that's found in verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Whereas salt and food is hidden, light is only effective when it's visible. While salt and food is hidden, light is only effective when it's visible. We've all experienced the blessings of a flashlight on a dark night, right? Something as simple as a single LED bulb and a simple battery can completely change a situation from being dangerous and threatening to calm and safe. Darkness in Scripture is a very powerful metaphor which points us to spiritual darkness or blindness without knowledge of, under the curse of God. Indeed, darkness is one of the descriptions of hell in the New Testament, symbolic of the wrath of God. We live in a world that is spiritually dark. We live in families and communities that are filled with spiritual blindness. God then calls us to shine forth in the midst of these dark places, even as He has done so in our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, For God said, excuse me, for God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, 
has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We cannot call forth light in our own hearts. God has, out of His own initiative, He has shown into our hearts, showing us our need for a Savior and the loveliness of Christ that we would turn to Him. But He uses means to do that. He uses especially His Word. But in order for folks to hear the Word, His people must open their mouths and speak the Word. In the context here, uh, we reflect the light of God. We serve as the light of the world with good works. Verse 16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What's he talking about? He's talking about the outward effects of a life that has been transformed by Jesus. Good works don't get you to heaven, period, full stop. There are not enough good works that you could do in all of eternity to earn God's love. You can't do it. It just won't work. But good works define, not define, characterize those who are heading to heaven. They don't get you to heaven but they characterize a life that is heading to heaven. And as we fulfill those two great commandments, to love God and to love our neighbor, our friends, our relatives, our neighbors will be shown in our actions and our words and our deeds and our attitudes. There is something different about us, about these people called Christians. The impact that this can have on a society cannot be um, overstated. Between the years 165 and 180 A.D., a great plague struck the Roman Empire. In fact, at its height in the city of Rome, 2,000 people were dying a day. That's a lot of people. The Roman army was gutted. And indeed, almost a full third of the population of the Roman Empire died. So what did people do? They left the cities. We see this in China right now, right? I mean, where cities are, the viruses spread quickly, and so they left the cities. But do you know who stayed in the cities? Believers. Believers stayed to care for those who were doomed to death. Can you imagine the witness and the impact on your neighbor as... You stayed while they left to take care of their dying mother? Imagine that. What do you mean you're staying here? Well, I'm actually staying here to take care of your family who's dying. Why would you do that? Because, you know, death isn't it. And I'll be with Jesus when it's all over. He loves me and I love you and this is what love looks like. What an amazing testimony. To the point that just a little over 100 years later, the Roman Empire went from being formally opposed to Christianity, killing them as when they could, to being dominated by it. Mostly by God's people living out their lives as salt and light whenever possible. We do not do good works to draw attention to ourselves. The text here is real clear. It's so that others might worship God and come to know Him. But it's not just enough to use our words. People might see that there's something different, but they don't, won't know what that difference is until good words accompany the good works. Where we are able to tell others 
about the true light of the world, who is Christ, who has shone into our hearts and will shine into yours, bringing salvation. Well, light was really expensive back in Jesus' day, which helps us understand some of his points here. That a city can't be hidden on a hill, that you don't uh, light a lamp and then hide it. Uh, Light was really precious. So if we go back, the statistics um, for the Babylonian era, which was before this, granted, but there wasn't much change by this point. If you spent your entire day's wage on oil for your lamp at home, do you know how much oil you could buy? Only enough to light a single lamp for 10 minutes. Think about that. You don't eat that day. You spend everything you got just on oil for your lamp. It's only going to buy you light for 10 minutes. When the sun went down, you went to sleep. So when we read that Christ is the light of the world, think about what that means in that context. It's dark. There are no street lights. There's no ambient light coming from cities. In fact, things didn't change with light until about 1800 with the invention of kerosene. 1800 when a day's wage would purchase enough for five hours. By the way, today, a day's wage will buy you enough light for a 100-watt bulb to burn for 2.8 years. A little bit different, right? We can't fathom the idea of what living in a dark world was. And so when when we are told that we are to be the, the light of the world, light is a precious thing. You wouldn't spend all this money and then put a a, a bushel over it. You wouldn't put a basket over it to hide what you have spent so much on. Can you see how this gets us to Jesus? We are precious to Him. We were expensive. If we think about the fact that God calls us to be the light of the world, it cost Him a lot. What did it cost him for us to be able to shine forth in good works and in our good words about the only light that will bring light to our dark hearts? It cost the God-man Jesus his life. Not only did he die a painful death, it was awful, drowning in his own fluids as they filled up his lungs and the the punctures in his wrists and his feet and the, the blood coming down out off of his brow. Those were terrible things, but they paled in comparison to the punishment that he went through on the cross as he paid for our sins, experiencing hell for us. As the whole world turned dark because the God man Jesus was dying on the cross, this is what he paid for you and me. Why then would we hide that price? Why then would we hide the good news of what Christ has done for us? And yet so often we do. The light that we reflect, is that a reflected light? When it's a, um, I bought a really, or I got two years ago, a really nice um, telescope looking at the stars. You know you can't look at the stars when there's a full moon out? You can't. Because the light of the moon dims out all the other ones. And I found out real quick, when I, the first full moon after I got the telescope, I was so excited. I was going to take my telescope out and, and look at the moon. It was so bright. You can't do that. It's too bright. It hurts your eyes to look at a full moon through a telescope, at least the kind I have. But the moon is bright, but it's not its own source, is it? It is a reflected light of the greater light. And so we serve as a reflected light of Christ, who is the true light of the world. He says in John 8, 12, 
I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do people see the reflected light of Christ in our hearts, in our lives? Or do we put a bushel, a basket, over our light, keeping folks away from the knowledge of the only salvation? But here's the thing, the world won't always like it. Remember, so we are called to be salt and light in this world, even the world doesn't like it. And that we see in verses 10 through 13. We see here that persecution comes to believers. I have on the back of my vehicle an Arabic letter. Um, it's the Arabic letter for in. And it's, um, it's to stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in the Middle East because there are groups in the Middle East who once they find out that your house has Christians in it, they will write this Arabic letter for in or noon in spray paint. And it stands for a pejorative term in the Quran for Christians, a Nazarene. And then the next day they come and kill everybody in the house. If you have the label of in as a Christian. Persecution is something that our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world only know so well. And may it never come here. But if it does, are you willing to die for Jesus? If not, don't do the Apostles' Creed next week. Because this is what I ask when we do it. Christian, what do you believe and for what are you willing to die? But there is, even when we don't face death for our belief, and praise God, that's not up and running right now, there is a cost to loving Jesus even in the South, especially socially. These verses tell us that we will be persecuted for two reasons. The first is for pursuing righteousness, that is right living. And the second is because of the sake of Christ, a relationship with Him. It will come. It will come. Socially there is a cost. Persecution can take many forms and the things that we, the cost in this world that we face pale in comparison to our brothers and sisters in Christ they have around the world. But there will be times when people will revile you because you are a believer. That means to abuse verbally. You know, it's counterintuitive to think that as we serve as salt and light, seeking to draw attention to the only one through whom salvation can come, that people wouldn't like that. But that's how it works. Because unless the Lord works in our hearts, we don't desire Him. Students, are you willing to be made fun of because of your faith in Christ? Because you will not do what your friends do on the weekends, look at what they look at on your phones, or hang out with certain crowds, or follow them on the weekends. They will make fun of you. Are you willing to be made fun of for Jesus? Adults, I think we're going to increasingly be exposed to verbal abuse as Bible-believing Reformed Christians because of our biblical view of human sexuality. Increasingly unpopular as a traditional view of marriage and gender. Are you willing to be ridiculed for that? It's not your truth, it's God's, and it cannot be changed. Jesus also says that persecution comes. It becomes a physical thing. You know, I think here in the States, what does it look like for us? It means when we're excluded from friend groups, not invited to certain events, or perhaps a hunting club. Why? Because 
people don't like a stick in the mud when they're having fun. At least that's their idea of it. There are costs socially to walking with Jesus. When these things don't work, people utter lies falsely about us. And persecution goes right in for character assassination through lies. It's what they did to Jesus. They bribed people to lie about him. So, should we expect this? Well, Jesus says yes. In fact, we read in John chapter 15, verses 19 through 20, If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Talking about Christians. The world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Are you willing to pay the social costs of being a believer in Christ? But note that victimhood is not what's called for. Victimhood and belief in Christ don't go together. The text does not say victimized are those who are persecuted. It says blessed. Blessed. Why? Why could he say rejoice and be glad for persecution? Well, for one, it validates our profession. Who is willing to be persecuted for something they don't believe? But secondly, you never know how God is going to use the social cost that you have to pay to bring others to salvation. Think about the impact that Stephen had on Paul as Paul stood there guarding the cloaks of the men who were stoning him to death. And soon Paul went from the persecutor of the church to the evangelist of the church. You never know how God's going to use persecution and enduring silently and even rejoicing in it to bring others to a saving knowledge of Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, when the apostles had been released after being jailed for their belief and preaching of the word, they said this, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor on account of the name. God calls us to be salt and light even when the world doesn't like it as we wait for the reward that is ours in Christ Jesus. What is the reward? Verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is a reward, not that is earned, but an inheritance that is given. That, heaven forbid, what if all of our stuff was taken away from us? What if we lost our families? Who would we still have? We would have Jesus. And He is enough. We wait for the day when we fully receive our reward of salvation, of heaven. The day of the Lord's return. So we pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, may we be salt and light even when there's a cost. Being winsome as we point others to Christ. And we pray that you would use us to boldly proclaim the love of our Savior to a lost and dying world. In the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen.